I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part three in the series, The True and False Self, Filled with All the Fullness of God. Who can know the mind of God? Who can know God at all? Is God knowable, and to what extent? God is cosmic and eternal, omnipotent and perfect, but He's also intimate, and personal, relational, and knowable. How can He be both? In uh, writer-director Paul Schrader's 2017 masterpiece, First Reformed, Reverend Ernst Toller is called to the home of a young man who is unraveling over anxiety about the future, in particular um, ecological fallout and global warming and the inevitable destruction of the planet. And the young man asks the reverend, can God forgive us for what we have done to this world? And Reverend Toller answers by shaking his head and posing another question, who can know the mind of God? which itself poses more questions. How knowable is God? Can the mind of God be known at all? Who are we in the grand calculus of God? We are in an ongoing series called The True and False Self, filled with all the fullness of God. For the next few weeks, we're going to sit before a simple yet profound concept. What does it mean to know God and to be known by him. Knowing God is not the same thing as knowing things about God. And truly knowing God, I believe, is at the heart of true and faithful discipleship to Jesus. Which brings us back to Colossians chapter 1, where we've just read. Look down at the text again at verse 15, and let's go through it and find a few interesting things about it before we end this evening. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Here's something interesting. Judaism bore no physical representations of God. Climb the stone stairs leading up to the temple in Jerusalem, take a stroll inside, and you would find no statues, no paintings, no murals depicting Yahweh, the creator God. Pull back the curtain and enter the most holy place, the holy of holies, and still no bronze bust, no mosaic, no sculptures of God. Not Michelangelo, nor William Blake's bearded deity, nor Morgan Freeman, nor Alanis Morissette, nothing. God's missing image so perplexed ancient pagans because they would say to themselves, look at our incredible sculpture of Zeus. There he is. That's what he looks like. Behold our monument. It showcases the glorious form of Baal. Where is your God? How can one know what they cannot see? How can one worship what they cannot know? But if you read the opening pages of the Hebrew Scriptures, right there in the first passage of Genesis, you would know that Yahweh had commissioned his image, his physical representation in the world, and it was in human beings. And that was unheard of, and it didn't go well, if you know the story. Human beings failed in their task to represent God to the world, and into that peculiarity, Paul, the author of Colossians, proposes something scandalous and beautiful. A man, Jesus of Nazareth, a peasant stonemason turned self-taught rabbi from Nowheresville, he the true image, 
the unfailing physical embodiment and most accurate representation of the creator God. And this man is, Paul writes, firstborn over all creation, meaning not that Jesus was created first. He actually wasn't created at all. He is eternally God, but meaning Jesus is ultimate in authority and supremacy. He is greatest among everything. And then Paul goes on in verse 16, in him all things were created, doesn't get much bigger than that, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is not just a man. He was, but not just a man. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not even just a God. No, Jesus of Nazareth is the ultimate authoritative power and the embodiment of the one and only creator God above all gods. He is the great mind unraveling, supreme all in all over the entire cosmos. But incredibly, Paul is now going to take that wonderfully near unknowable cosmic reality from above and bring it down into the waking reality of the ordinary mortal human beings reading this letter. Watch what he writes in verse 18. He is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy." So this magnificent reality of the knowable God revealed in Jesus is the one who leads the church. Now keep in mind, the church at this point in human history, the audience reading this letter, Paul writing the letter, the church is not a powerful global political superpower. Not even close. The church was a fledgling, grassroots, mostly underground movement built from scattered, imperfect, persecuted minority of people. And the all-powerful, supreme creator God embodied in this man, Jesus, is the one who leads this little rabble. This is actually his movement. And the church is actually born from Jesus' victory over evil and death. Powerful cosmic reality distilled down to the most humble thing imaginable. And now, this tiny rabble of Christians, they have actually inherited Jesus' legacy of resurrection. They themselves will enjoy his victory over death. Why? Listen to this in verse 19. This is huge. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the Son is not one dimension of the supreme God. All of God dwelled and dwells in Jesus of Nazareth. Why? God wanted to lower himself into the vile depravity and broken, dying, and decomposing world of mortality and sin because he wanted to rescue us. The things that we once believed were not only off, 
They were actually enmity between us and God, entirely opposed to God. Now, the NIV, the translation from which we read, renders the phrase, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. The CEB has it, which was shown by your evil actions. But scholar Scott McKnight argues that there's actually no necessary because or by, meaning... Paul is just describing three unique but interconnected realities, meaning you were alienated, you were enemies in your minds, and you practiced evil deeds. Three things. He says alienation described their overall condition with two manifestations, a mental resistance to God's will and revelation, as well as behaviors that are evil. So you were alienated. You were enemies in your minds. You practiced evil deeds. This was really the entire world as Paul knew it. He saw it all the time. He traveled across the ancient world, planting churches, telling people about Jesus. And the world he knew was set apart um, from God, set against the way of Jesus. McKnight argues that Paul saw such in every Roman city. Paul's expression in Colossians 1.21 about evil deeds then flows out of his daily observations of Roman male behaviors. Scholar N.T. Wright describes this as Paul's you-are-here writing technique. It's as if Paul is plotting the status and identity of these disciples of Jesus on a map with regard to where they've been and where they're going. There was a time when you were outside of the kingdom. You were excluded from citizenship in God's people. There was a time when you were not included in the covenant. You lived as if God meant nothing to you. You knew nothing about right belief, let alone right living, and you were en route to destruction. That is where you were, but you were washed, sanctified, justified, reconciled, made without blemish. That is where you are. One is in the past, one is now. And this is how Paul talks to Gentiles throughout his writing. Look at this from Ephesians chapter 2. He says something really similar. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with King Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So you weren't in the family at one point in your story. But now, those of you who have been reconciled to God through Jesus, now you are. And here's how. Look back at Colossians 1, verse 22. Paul wrote, Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. You are reconciled because God acted in human history. And his action was a real thing that happened, physical, mental, spiritual, cosmic. It happened at a point in our story, in the unfolding history of the world. So God is able to reconcile us, bodies, minds, soul, all of creation, the timeline of human history in the world, because God, in Jesus, conquered death 
on the cross and in the resurrection, in his physical body, within time, at a real place in the world, not a spiritual idea, not a cosmic force or abstract concept. It actually happened. God did the work because he wanted to, and more specifically, he wanted you. You didn't want him You ran away, and he gave himself up to get you back. And now, because of what God has accomplished in Jesus, you can be reconciled to God, made holy in his sight. That's another way of saying made unique, set apart from the rest of the world, without blemish, free from accusation, nothing against you whatsoever, empowered to live the way of Jesus by his spirit, freely given out to every single person who would have him. It's a screaming deal, actually. It's all very, very churchy. I know, very Christian. But Paul doesn't end there. All that sounds really nice. So here's where it gets controversial. You ready for this? Look at verse 23. What's the first word? If. And it's the same sentence that began in verse 22. Listen, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So there it is, a conditional clause. Scott McKnight argues, saving faith, as it is often said, is persevering faith. And without persevering faith, there is no salvation. Moo, yes, there is a theologian named Moo, He says the same exact thing. He says, Paul wants to confront the Colossians with the reality that their eventual salvation depends on their remaining faithful to Christ and to the true gospel. Here's another one. In his his commentary on this passage, scholar Ben Witherington says this, Paul believes that moral effort is required of the Colossians if they are to reach the finish line and hear the benediction of their own lives. Reconciliation is not some automatic process. On the contrary, the Colossians need to continue steadfast in their faith. See, we tend to think of this thing that we call salvation as something that happens in an instant, and that's it. But in the Bible, the whole thing is far more complicated. You were saved. Yes, there was a moment for some of you, or a prayer conversation with a friend or a mentor, a church gathering, a sermon that you heard, something, and you decided at a moment in your life that you would follow Jesus. But you're still being saved. You are being made over into the image of Jesus more and more every day as you continue to follow him. And you will be saved on a coming day when Jesus sets the world to rights at the renewal of all things. See, the scriptures often liken our relationship with Jesus to a marriage covenant. I got married to my wife, Abby, on an evening in November in 2007. And every day since then, we are learning to be married. We are walking in the marriage covenant together. We are choosing to love one another again and again and again, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, but repenting and choosing the covenant again and again and again. But we could stop. We could quit. It happens all the time, actually. In the same way, you can bail on Jesus. That also happens all the time. Now, please listen to me. It's not 
that salvation is something that you can lose as if it could be misplaced. But it can be willfully set aside. It's not that, you know, if you break too many rules, you somehow forfeit your status as redeemed. But just as you once said yes to the way of Jesus, just as you once chose Jesus, you can later on, of your God-given volition and autonomy, choose to say no to the way of Jesus. Often this happens in a deliberate, outspoken way, as is the case in the popular deconstruction fad. And often it's less purposefully articulated. It's when one simply quietly steps away from the way of Jesus by choosing a life apart from him again and again and again until no relationship remains. Maybe they haven't posted their big, brave, I quit post on Instagram, but their life no longer evidences anything of Jesus. They quit. You can come to faith, authentically love and follow Jesus, and then stop, quit, break covenant in a moment or over many moments, leaving the way of Jesus behind and in doing so, forfeiting the inheritance given by God through salvation. And if all that sounds really scary, it should. Uh, In the early years of my marriage, we knew a small handful of couples who uh, also got married around the same time and their relationships unraveled for various reasons, affairs or unaddressed trauma or avoidance or whatever it might be. And with incredible naivety, I used to think, oh, that could never happen to us though because we're pretty good at this. Uh, Now, I have seen so many broken marriages, affairs, eroded trust, embittered relationships that I know all of us are vulnerable to sin and failure and that my wife Abby and I have to consciously, willfully fight for the covenant. Yes, of course, we love one another and right now we're doing really good, we're happy, but there's an if ever before us in our relationship. It's not that our relationship is fragile or flimsy or that we could lose or misplace it. It's that we make choices. We have been given that autonomy by God, and we are also broken and imperfect, which is why Paul says it three times. You're reconciled to God and will continue to be if you continue to stand established and firm and do not move from the way. There is no once saved, always saved in Paul's theology. Think about it. If your reconciliation to God can't change no matter how hard you denounce Jesus, then what Paul writes here doesn't make any sense at all. But Paul, in his many, many years of ministry, had experienced people bailing on Jesus. The Christians in Colossae had begun to face cultural pressure and watched brothers and sisters fall away from faith. So he's pleading with them, remember the story. Remember who you were. Remember who you are now. And remember what's at stake. But lucky for us, our relational standing with God is not measured in accomplishments, but in relational love. Thus, the conditional clause of persevering salvation is the conditional clause of faithful love. God was pleased to save us. He wanted to do it. He wants us. God wants relational love. God longs for us. In the story of the scriptures, God is depicted as 
a lover with an unrequited love. We do not always reciprocate. Richard Foster once wrote, Today the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. Some of us, I suspect, hear Paul's conditional clause, if, and we retreat into memories and trauma and fear over a rule-keeping God who will only forgive us if we accomplished his unrealistic moral criteria. And yet, such a God is mysteriously absent from the Bible that depicts the all-powerful creator as a wounded lover that longs for his beloved, that weeps over unrequited love, a God who was pleased to lower himself in order to seek and save wayward children, a God that longs for, of all things, company. Paul's conditional if does not banner a list of moral objectives nor a warning of disqualifying moral failure but the if of steadfast love. This week, my family was gathered around the dinner table as we do every night, and we prayed before we eat, as is our nightly tradition. And on this particular evening, I decided to invite my kids to describe something for which they felt particularly grateful. And my son, Beck, who's eight, Uh, was thinking of other stories that children in his class have been telling lately and said strangely and bittersweetly, I'm grateful that my uh, parents live in the same house and are not divorced. And Abby and I agreed. We said, we are grateful as well. I have and will, will continue to fail my wife and my children. And she can tell you at least two stories about that happening, maybe less. We have failed. (laughs) We have failed one another over the 17 years of our relationship, and we have failed one another over the 14 years of our marriage. Sinned against one another, hurt one another, betrayed trust, and these sins and failures and betrayals, they range from kind of like careless and ultimately forgettable to significant, painful, egregious. And this is, as you know, the unfortunate reality of any intimate and meaningful long-term relationship. But our relationship, our marriage, has no three-strike system, no uh, you're out if you do this or that thing. As long as we choose to love one another and to endure in that love, we will love one another and endure in that love by the grace of God. Paul's conditional if is not moral, or behavioral, it's logical. It makes a ton of sense. It's relational. You cannot be with Jesus if you, continue, if you do not continue to be with Jesus. Paul's conditional if does not render God an unfair rule keeper or a taskmaster. He reveals God as an actual relational being. Thomas Merton argued, we must know the truth. We must love the truth, we know. And we must act according to the measure of our love. Truth is God himself who cannot be known apart from love and cannot be loved apart from surrender to his will. Many of us, including those who have claimed Christianity for a long time, are still learning what this means. 
In Brendan Manning's Abba's Child, he writes at length about what many mistake to be a small detail nestled within the Gospel of John. The NIV, the ESV, the NLT, they all translate John 13, 23, something like this. One of them, this is during the Last Supper, as the disciples and Jesus are all gathered around the table, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, meaning reclining next to Jesus. Now, both of these translations strangely omit the Greek word kolpos, which means chest or bosom or breast, which appears in the original text. John isn't just sitting beside Jesus. He is resting his head on Jesus' chest, which is why throughout church history, if you Google icon of John, he will be depicted something like this with his head rested against the chest of Jesus. Interestingly, the message is much closer to a faithful translation of the original Greek. One of the disciples, the one Jesus loved dearly, was reclining against him, his head on his shoulder, a more intimate portrait. And Brendan Manning, in his book, Abba's Child, he believed that this, this evening, this moment, became the identifying moment of John's entire life. Decades later, when John would finally commit the story of Jesus, his firsthand eyewitness biography of Jesus to Papyrus, how did he choose to identify himself in the text? Does anyone know? Right, the disciple Jesus loved. Can you imagine such a thing being your first, most prominent, most essential identity? the way by which you document your own story in history. Not even John, but the disciple that Jesus loved. Who is Levi? Who is Ali? Who is Kiana? The disciple that Jesus loved. And the reason Brendan Manning has come to ascribe such tremendous significance to that evening and that moment when John lay against Jesus' heart is because of something that the disciple himself wrote almost in passing. This is from John 21, verse 20. He's just describing details of an important event. And he writes, Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his chest at supper. It was this disciple, the one who shamelessly lay against Jesus' beating heart, who would later go on to write things like this. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And later he wrote this as well. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And of this incredible knowledge, Manning wrote this. The recovery of passion, passion for the way of Jesus, begins with the recovery of my true self as the beloved If I find Christ, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. This is the goal and purpose of our lives. John did not believe that Jesus was the most important thing. He believed that Jesus was the only thing. For the disciple Jesus loved, anything less was not genuine faith. To know about someone is not the same thing as knowing them. Brendan Manning also tells this remarkable story in which an old man is dying of cancer. During the man's final days, a priest comes to visit him in the hospital 
and discovers him in the room looking at and talking to an empty chair situated next to his sick bed. Caught, the dying man admits to the priest that he had for most of his life struggled to understand prayer. All his life, until, that is, he took up this peculiar habit of sitting before an empty chair and speaking to the chair as if Jesus himself were sitting in it. And then the dying man said, after that, he could talk to Jesus for hours. And the priest was moved. He blessed the practice, told him to keep it up. Two nights later, the dying man's daughter contacted the priest with the unfortunate news of her father's passing. The priest consoled her and asked if her father had died in peace. And the daughter told him that around two o'clock in the afternoon, her father had called her to his bedside, told her a joke, kissed her on the cheek. She left him for an hour or so to run errands, and when she returned, she found that her father had leaned over and rested his head on a chair beside the bed and died. Knowing things about someone and actually knowing them are very different. The older I get, the more I realize how knowable God really is, how many dimensions there are to the ways in which we can know him. How do we know him? Across the complicated unfolding of time and, as is the case with any relationship, through time spent. Again, David Benner argues, relationships develop when people spend time together. Spending time with God ought to be the essence of prayer. However, as it is usually practiced, prayer is more like a series of email or instant messages than hanging out together. Often it involves more talking than listening. It should not be a surprise that the result is a superficial friendship. That starting point for learning to simply spend time with God is learning to do this with Jesus. Spending time with Jesus allows us to ground our God-knowing in the concrete events of a concrete life. And he goes on to argue for two core practices. First, meeting Jesus in the Gospels, which is this idea that you would spend time most days in the stories of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, not for the purpose of just Bible study, but to immerse oneself in the story, to imagine it from many angles, to ponder it deeply, one scene at a time, to daydream over the text, to put yourself in the story, as in one character, another character. Imagine what God, through Jesus, would say to you in those moments spending time with Jesus in the Gospels. And then secondly, to meet God in the events of life. When I get home from work every day, and again, after our kids are in bed, Abby and I talk. We share the events of our day. We listen to one another. We bring one another into what the other is thinking and feeling about the small details, the triviality of it all, the lingering feelings and questions and emotions. And I am convinced that this very simple practice, one that we easily take up because we like each other, is at the heart of our profound friendship, that every afternoon and every evening we talk and sit together for a while. And yet, as David Benner rightly observes, many of us do not pray this way. Instead, we make lists, or we rattle off non sequiturs, our minds wandering, or we, we, we petition, we issue apologies, and then we move on. There's nothing wrong with each of those things per se, but what if... We, day after day, revisited the hours that have just passed with Jesus, the way we debrief each day with a loved one. And what if we asked what he thought and listened? What if we 
talked to the chair, so to speak? What if we invited Jesus into the small details, the triviality of it, the lingering feelings and questions and emotions? Would we not be better friends for it? Both of these practices will be detailed and available for your Van City community, or if you're listening online, feel free to help yourself at vancity.church slash true and false self. Over the last couple of weeks, I read my kids The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for the first time. They have no previous exposure to these stories, first time in Narnia. And I've read, you know, I've read this book, and I've heard this story many times in my life, but what struck me this time, reading it chapter after chapter every night, with, you know, my kids begging every single time, well, one more chapter, you know, was the incredible balance with which Lewis depicts the awesome and terrifying power of Aslan and his kindness and gentleness and compassion. If you didn't know already, C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia were born from Lewis wondering, what if there were another world, a magical one, and what if Jesus had to enter that world as well in order to save it? from evil and death. So in the fantasy story, the lion called Aslan is not a metaphor for Jesus, as is often mistakenly argued, but a fictional embodiment of Jesus in another world. In one passage, Susan and Lucy Pevensey actually play with Aslan. And Lewis writes this, round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again, and now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. But then, only a few lines later, he writes this. Aslan stood up, and when he opened his mouth to roar, his face became so terrible that they did not dare look at it. And they saw all the trees in front of him bend before the blast of his roaring as grass bends in a meadow before the wind. Or here's another famously quoted passage. Susan Pevensey, before meeting Aslan, asks, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. (laughs) It's very British, these stories. (laughs) That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When I was younger, I was terrified of the unsafe, roaring Christian God, the terrible, unfathomable God of the Old Testament. And for most of my life, not loving myself, not liking myself, I saw the terrible God through the eyes of a cowering, trembling wretch who could not conceive of God's love for someone so utterly detestable. But over many years, The terrifying God came to me as a gentle father, and I struggled against his arms again and again, and he was patient with me, and he spoke to me quietly, and he waited and followed and pursued, and with the warmth of his touch, he eventually swabbed the terrifying God away. 
the cruel and unknowable taskmaster. And he was for me the father of the prodigal son, the God who welcomes children in his name, the God who dies for his enemies rather than destroying them. And with great and near unbelievable patience, he allowed me to grow over the years of my life. He would not let me alone. And I did, slowly. And all these years later, now nearing middle age, God allows me to see more of him, who he really is. And he has given me the stomach for it, the heart to hold more of his incredible personhood. And I can now look upon the God who roars, who is not safe, but good. And I can be me, the broken, quivering disciple that Jesus loves. And I can rest in the tender embrace of the Father in one moment and in the next with my heart in my throat, shaken by reverence, dare not look directly into his awesome face. Because he was good enough to meet me and disclose himself to me. He is the gentle Father who gives himself away and he is the all-powerful love that burns away evil and death with his mere presence. And these days, I want both. These days, I want to lay my head on the beating heart of the God who is both, not afraid, but in love. Let's pray and ask God to disclose himself to us, the disciples Jesus loves. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.